Hi there, I trust that you're doing well and that you're enjoying this series. We've been talking about our identity and in particular over the last couple of weeks, we've been discussing the whole area of cognitive distortions, cognitive distortions. How do we develop a sound mind by uprooting these distortions? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to share your word. We thank you for the power of your word and the word of your power. And we pray, Lord, that as your word goes forth today, that it will change lives, that your word will transform our hearts from the inside out will be changed, Lord. We open our hearts to you and we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and guide us into all truth. We pray that lies will be uprooted once and for all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So today I'm going to continue talking about these distortions. I shared with you six of them uh, last week, and I encourage you to keep delving deeper and deeper into these. Pray about them. This is a kind of these are the kind of messages where you can't just listen to it once per se. You literally need to go through it again. Uh, go through our prayer strategies, which we have on our website uh, in conjunction with each sermon as you're listening to it, and make sure that these distortions, these lies, this these misbeliefs are fully uprooted uh, in your life. Don't let the enemy rob you of what God wants to do in this hour, in this season. He's been speaking to me about how he wants to uproot lies, right? Because we make a lot of decisions based on these lies and these distortions and we become friends with them, all right? So I'm going to go straight into it and I want to share with you the seventh cognitive distortion that we're going to look at. It's uh, control fallacies and blame. Control fallacies and blame. You see, misplaced blame is something many people are guilty of, unfortunately. Misplaced blame. And you see, what you blame, what you blame, if you keep on blaming someone else and something else for your current situation, okay, you deny yourself the ability to change. So we must be careful where we assign blame, okay? If we, if we get this right, we can end up solving so many problems, okay? Um, we, we tend to blame someone else when it was actually our responsibility. And very often we blame ourselves and we feel so guilty and we start to self-loathe when it was actually not our responsibility. And that's misplaced blame, okay? Um, we blame ourselves for things outside of our control. So the first type of blaming, it's external blame, isn't it? It's external blame. So you blame other people. Now just examine yourself, okay? Uh, you blame your boss for having to do overtime, right? Um, but it was actually your poor quality work, right? And your boss says to you, you know, go and redo it. And then you blame him when it was actually your poor quality work, okay? Um, and then your mindset is, if my boss gave me more time, my work will be better. But I can tell you right now, there are a whole lot of people out there who have the same amount of time as you, but they're performing better. Okay, um, classic example, we get so used to it and it becomes literally a habit, you know. Um, when I work with teams, I actually like asking them that question. Who do you tend to blame for your misfortunes in this team, right? Who do you tend to blame for the misfortunes experienced by this team? Is it the government? Is it the corporate culture? Is it the sales territory you're working in, okay? Um, and I just want to say this, by saying this, by saying this, by always shifting the blame, okay, uh, you actually give external control to someone else. You give external control to someone else. You actually empower someone else's weakness very often. You know, when you say things like, oh, you can't blame me for acting the way I did 
You know, I'm working with a bunch of losers and they're so nasty to me. And my boss is just, he, he demotivates me actually. So I'm now empowering him to do all sorts of things to me. Okay. As opposed to saying, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm not going to give someone else's weakness power over my mood. Okay. That's the mindset we need to have right? It's the mindset we need to have. And you see, when we don't have a godly mindset around this, this is where strongholds develop. This is where strongholds develop. For some people, it's a stronghold. It's a stronghold that they have, a mental stronghold that's affecting them because it's always someone else's fault. This is quite prevalent in our on our continent, on the African continent, it's quite prevalent because our worldview is very fatalistic, isn't it? Okay, so we've got a strong external locus of control. Okay, some people are strong in terms of internal locus of control. So their mindset is whatever I do, okay, is what's going to shape my future. When you've got a strong external locus of control, you believe that your destiny is outside of yourself, right? Your destiny is, is in someone else's hands, right? That's an external locus of control. And what tends to happen on the continent, for example, I could go in as a consultant and speak to someone and say, your business is failing because of your poor leadership skills. But they'll turn around and say, no, it's because my brother bewitched me. Okay. And they sincerely believe that. Now, here's the thing. Will that person ever read on leadership? No, they won't. Will that person ever go to a leadership course? No, they won't. Will that person ever repent of um, wrong attitudes in terms of their leadership? No, they won't. Because they believe that the destiny of their company, of their organization is completely outside of them. Okay. And it becomes a problem. It becomes a problem. So there's external, external assignment right, that we give to, uh, to situations that we find ourselves in. And it's extremely dangerous because we don't take responsibility, we don't take accountability, right? But there's also another blame fallacy, and that's to do with internal, that internal blaming, okay? These are people who are very high on responsibility, and when it comes to uh, anything around them, it could be their spouse's mood, they're already vigilant, they're hyper-vigilant about it, thinking, oh no, am I in trouble? What did I do? You know, did I, are they going to blame me for something? Oh, it's my fault. You know, I wasn't, I, I didn't cook them a nice meal, or, uh, you know, I, I didn't listen to them intently when we were talking, okay? So what is it that you are doing that is, uh, where you're blaming yourself internally, internal blame, okay, for something that is actually not your fault. It's not actually your responsibility. Just think about that and examine yourself, okay? So when we're talking about internal uh, blame, we're talking about things like uh, where you continuously blame yourself for someone else's happiness or sadness. This is what happens when people become codependent. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, the codependent person who's married to the alcoholic and uh, the alcoholic comes home uh, and they drunk, right? The codependent person sees their alcoholic husband uh, stumbling over the staircase. And what do they say? You know what? We shouldn't be living in a double story house. We should be living in a bungalow. It's my fault, actually. You know what? I need to actually sort this out. These stairs aren't good. Naughty, naughty stairs. Okay. Um, so you have to know where do I end and where does the next person begin? This is so crucial. It's so important. A lot of people aren't conscious of some of these, um, these things. Okay. Um, so can you handle someone else being frustrated or sad, or do you believe it's always because of something you've done wrong? Okay. Because what ends up happening is instead of being truly concerned about that person's emotions, 
right? Hey, are you okay? Was everything fine at work? What happens? You're actually self-absorbed and self-centered when you ask them questions because you're hyper-vigilant about it. And your focus is just, I just don't want to get in trouble. I just want to make sure that I'm not the one who's the guilty party here. I'm not the one to blame. I need my spouse to be in a good mood in order for me to be in a good mood. It's that mentality. It's so crucial that we don't have internal blame, okay? Don't assign blame on us to ourselves when it's actually someone else's responsibility. Here's the principle. People are responsible for their own emotional state, okay? Uh, you know, you have many people saying, leaders are supposed to motivate people. And I say, no, leaders are not supposed to motivate people. Leaders are supposed to create an environment where people become self-motivated. There's a slight difference. When I come home, right, after a hard day's work, when I get home, uh, I'm responsible for my own mood and I'm responsible for creating an atmosphere where people are more likely to be happy, but I can't make them happy, all right? Um, that's so important, okay? So when your child fails a test, for example, do you blame yourself and immediately your automatic thought is, I'm a bad parent, all right? Or do you understand the fact that, you know what, they're responsible to study for their own exams. They're responsible to apply themselves. They're responsible to listen to their parents when their parents say, keep focused, don't play, play after work. All right. So uh, people who are high on responsibility tend to look inward and assign blame. They blame themselves for almost everything around them. Okay. So the principle here is you're responsible for your own behavior. Okay. You cannot say someone made you do something. All right. Or that someone made you feel bad about something. Right. Because that's a lie. Right. Based on a choice that you made either to respond to them or to react to them. Right. Um, you you end up feeling a certain way based on the story you tell yourself about the situation or the scenario. You end up feeling a certain way. So do not let anyone's poor choice of words affect your dignity. Okay, if someone hurls insults at you, you don't have to feel defiled by what they're saying, by their words. Okay, when we have a sound mind, God takes us to a place where the dominant voice that we're hearing is the voice of the Lord. Okay, that's what's dominant. That's what we're continuously meditating on. Okay, Med biblical meditation is to utter and to mutter. It's not to blank out your mind. It's to utter and to mutter, to get deep into the word of God concerning his view, concerning us, okay? So my question is, who are you blaming for your situation right now, right? Are you blaming yourself? Are you blaming something else? Or are you blaming someone else, okay? Are you rightly assigning blame? Are you rightly assigning blame? When we have a sound mind, we know how to rightly assign blame, okay? Um, if it's us, then we take responsibility, okay? On the other hand, if you are high on responsibility, you might find yourself blaming yourself for other people's choices and other people's behavior, all right? It's important to remember that there's a difference between influence and control. So I can say to myself, mm, I will try and influence my son better when it comes to how he studies, as opposed to thinking I'm in full control of the outcome. I'm in full control of how he studies because I can force him to get into his room to study but I can't force him to be thinking. I can't force him to be retaining the information, you see? So there's a difference between the influence we have and the control we have. I can influence many things, but I can't control a lot of things, okay? Very important, very important. 
Um, I want to I wanna also highlight this. Self-blame sometimes offers you an illusion of control and it also avoids attack on others, isn't it? Sometimes you'd rather blame yourself so that you feel like you're in control. It's very subtle and almost counterintuitive, but a lot of people who are control freaks end up blaming themselves so that they feel like they're in control of a situation, okay? And if you're, if you're a control freak and you also tend to avoid conflict, Okay, it's easier for you to blame yourself so that you don't have to confront the issue. Very subtle, but if that applies to you, it's important to actually uproot it. Okay, sometimes self-blame is also learned from childhood. We get so used to just blaming ourselves from of certain things from childhood. Okay, so our mindset is: if I take the blame, then I won't have to be angry with dad or mom, right? And he will not be angry with me. So let me just take the blame. Right. And that's how people get into the martyr syndrome, the martyr syndrome, where I'll be that martyr. I don't mind being victimized. At least I'm avoiding conflict. And at least dad or mom will not be angry with me. So how should we live when we live with a sound mind? Well, Philippians 4 verse 8, the Bible tells us, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. So these these mindsets we're talking about, these cognitive distortions, are they true? No, they're not true. They're based on falsehood and the devil is the father of all lies. Okay, so we must uproot them. Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, you know, often we make unfair judgments. It's not just. Whatever is pure, right? Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Part of making true disciples is coaching and discipling people with regards to what they should think about. This is so important. Coaching and discipling people with regards to what they should actually be focused on and thinking about. Okay, so important because what you think about and what you think about is what you eventually bring about. What are you continuously thinking about? What's got mind share? right? And what do you think about? In other words, what do you appreciate? Okay. What do you notice? Okay. Because that's what you will eventually bring about. Okay. And what I find interesting about Philippians 4 verse 8 is it doesn't actually qualify the situation. Okay. Paul was actually saying this. He quoted this when he was in prison. He wrote this when he was in prison. Okay. So it's not like he was just, oh, life is just wonderful. Everything is perfect. He was in prison. Okay. The book of Philippians, it's one of the prison epistles, right? And I find it interesting how he quoted this while in prison. And yet he's saying it's not about circumstances. It's actually about choosing what I'm going to think about. Okay. Whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is honorable, I'm going to focus on these things. Isn't that powerful? So what I'm going to think about and as a result, what I'm going to feel, my emotional state, okay, is not based on how you treat me. It's not based on my circumstances. It's not based on my bank balance, but it's based on what I choose to focus on. That's so, so important. And we can unpack that further in a workshop setting because there's so much to that. The, the second one I want to deal with today, it's really our eighth one, our eighth cognitive distortion, is the fallacy of reward and fairness. The fallacy of reward and fairness. You know, uh, the reward fallacy is expecting that sacrifice and self-denial have an automatic immediate payoff. You know what? You know what? We live in the microwave generation, right? We want instant everything. And so we've got this mindset of what's the quickest way to lose weight? 
And a lot of times when we want to do things the quickest way, it's a fad, isn't it? What's the quickest way to make money? So we go to the next get rich quick scheme, okay? And that's how the marketing works, doesn't it? Okay, it's all about how to do it quickly how to get the results quickly. You know, when you're training, when you're exercising, you don't want to go uh, with a particular program that shows you that, wait a minute, in six weeks time, you'll be able to run this speed. You want to you do it in two weeks, right? Um, so we, we've got this mindset. It's part of our human nature, part of that depraved aspect of human beings where uh, we think that if I suffer, just for a short time, then my reward is going to happen and it's going to happen immediately. And then we get disappointed. And then we start making unfair judgments and unfair criticisms on those who we see, wait a minute, it seems like he's the, he's the new kid on the block, but look what he's experiencing. Look at his results. And that's why that fallacy of reward works together with the fallacy of fairness. Okay. The reality is that life is not fair. And what we tend to do is we tend to judge everything, not based on eternity, but based on what's currently happening right now, this year. Okay. It's just us as human beings. We tend to do that. But when you renew your mind, you change your mindset concerning this. Okay. So we've got this mindset where when we don't get rewarded immediately, okay, we get so disappointed and we end up thinking life is not worth living. You see, a lot of these cognitive distortions result in depression. They result in anxiety, but it's because of our worldview. It's because of how we view life. Okay. Uh, the fairness fallacy. It's very common, okay? But the fact of the matter is life does not work out like a formula, okay? And if you were told that life is fair, then um, you will often be disappointed because it doesn't work out like that, you know? So you end up with this mindset of, I tithe more than that person, but how come they're getting their breakthrough faster? You don't know what else is taking place in that person's life, okay? There's so many spiritual mechanisms and there's so many things that heaven notices, all right? So we don't know what's going on. Um, God doesn't think like we do. His thoughts are far higher, okay? The Bible says, than our thoughts and his ways much higher than ours, right? God knows what will make you fall. That's the reality. He knows your character. He's assessed your character. There's certain people, it doesn't matter how wealthy they get, they won't fall. In fact, they'll become more spiritual because they'll thank God more and they will give more. There are other people, if you just give them an extra hundred thousand rand, for example, right, um, they'll backslide, right? So God understands those particular things. And some of the breakthroughs we don't experience sometimes are for our, our own good. Okay, and that's why I always say to people, do you have the character to contain the anointing? Because the anointing can also destroy you. Do you have the character to keep you successful when you become successful? Okay, um, your gift, your gift and your potential can take you to the top. Okay, but once you're there, it's your character that sustains you. And that's why a lot of people are one hit wonders. Remember those days where there was this, you, you think this is a famous musician, wonderful songwriter, but they only came out with one song. They might have written a whole lot of others, but you only knew their one song, right? And after a couple of years, you didn't know about them. And everyone wonders, what happened to that dude? What happened to that lady? That was a wonderful hit. They were a one-hit wonder, okay? And the reality with a lot of these people is that they haven't got the character for sustained success. And we can talk about that on another occasion. Their success and then their sustained success. I don't know about you, but with the church that we are building, we want to build a church, we want to build a church that lasts, Okay, when I build a church that lasts, where 40 years from now, 50 years from now, our children and our grandchildren, uh, we would have left a legacy. 
for them. That's what we want to do, right? And sometimes it might happen slowly, it might happen step by step, but I'm telling you right now, we're building for the future. The organization you want to build. This mindset is so, so important. You're building for the future. God is a multi-generational God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He, he had a multi-generational vision. And if we've got this cognitive distortion around instant everything, around reward, uh, reward uh, this reward fallacy, okay, and fairness fallacy, we will not be long-term thinkers. We'll keep looking around. You know, I'll talk a bit later uh, on another occasion about social comparison. It's a major cognitive distortion a lot of people have. We must watch out for that. You see, um, Lord, I pray more than her, but how come she got married before me? Okay, life doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. You see, the Bible throughout tells us not to worry when we see the wicked prosper because that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. Okay, it's so important. In the book of Psalms uh, 37, I'm going to read from verse 1 through to 9 in the NLT. It says, don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. Okay, for like grass, they soon, to fade, they soon fade away. So why do we worry about the wicked and why do we envy them when they're doing wrong? Okay, it's because of the reward fallacy. It's because of the fairness fallacy, isn't it? Okay. I go to church, Lord. I go to extra meetings. I don't just go once on Sunday. I go to the evening service. I, I listen to the pastor's sermons. I listen in prayer meetings. I agree. In it doesn't work that way. Okay. So don't worry about the wicked. Don't spend time thinking about that. Right. Or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they soon fade away. You see. And when God looks, he doesn't just look at what's happening in these next two years. God sees the whole picture. And let me tell you something. There are many wicked people that have faded away, right? Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. One of the reasons a lot of Christians stop doing good is because they're envying the wicked. And then they get bitter and they're like, I'm not attending prayer meetings anymore because they don't work. Because you wanted your breakthrough in three months, but it hasn't yet happened, right? You wanted a quick fix, but it hasn't yet happened, okay? It goes on to say, then you will live safely in the land and prosper. So how do you prosper? It's not by envying the wicked or studying how the wicked do what they do. It's trusting in the Lord and doing good, right? Bible says, then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Lord, how do I get my heart's desires? I must start off by delighting in you. Can you see how this is so similar to the scripture that says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, put God first and watch what he does. Okay? Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. What is it talking about? When other people are paying bribes, when other people are doing dodgy things, okay? Random dodgy people out there doing dodgy things, right? What will you be doing? You'll be walking in justice. You'll be walking in humility. You'll be focused on the Lord, putting him first. And what does the Bible say? It says, he will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Question, do you believe that? Okay, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. You see, sometimes when we are anxious, 
we end up busy, busy, busy doing all sorts of things like headless chickens, okay? Sometimes our busyness is indicative of our anxiety. Bible says, don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Sometimes it actually causes anger, doesn't it? Okay. A lot of times we get angry because of our perceived injustice. But it's not actually an injustice. We get angry with God. Oh, Lord, how could you have done this? Lord, you are not fair. And we get angry, right? I look how perfectly I've raised my kids. But look, they're turning out funny. And look at that other person, you know. He's hardly ever at home. Doesn't even connect with his children. And look at his kids, you know. They go to all the youth meetings and so on. But Lord, I've worked so hard for this. And then your self-righteousness kicks in. And what happens? That actually short circuits the breakthrough God wants to give you right now in this season. Again, watch out for that. Okay. So don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. You know, this anger thing, this anger thing is largely caused by comparison, largely caused by unrighteous judgments we make pointed toward, directed towards God himself, okay? Even when it comes to things like weight loss, you know? I know people were like, ah, that person just needs to go to the gym three times and they've already lost a lot of weight and they can even eat whatever they want to eat. But look at me, I'm not losing this weight. I'm not losing this weight, but I'm eating all these salads and I'm doing this. And you become angry and you direct your anger to the Lord and it causes you to sin. And the grace actually lifts. That grace you need to lose weight, right? is not there anymore because with the same measure you judge others, it will be measured on you, all right? So watch out for that. It only leads to harm for the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land, okay? So it's wise to measure life by looking at eternity, not just this year, not just what happened this year. Look at eternity. We need to use the right measures, in our life, in our lives, okay? The ninth one I want to look at, um, I want to look at the whole concept of debilitating rules. This is a common cognitive distortion that we have where we actually create rules that don't empower us, but they debilitate us. And so we often feel very drained. We feel very stressed out and shamed because of these rules we've created for ourselves, right? And these often manifest as shoulds right? These weights that we put on ourselves, right? Shoulds that Christ hasn't put on us. And that's why I often say to people, don't should on people, okay? If you live by shoulds, you'll always live in guilt, okay? Um, especially shoulds that are not in the Bible, especially these shoulds that are not in the Bible, okay? Um, so for example, um, I should speak to people like this, okay? I'm 30, Therefore, I should be doing X, Y, Z. Says who? Does the Bible actually say that? Say that? Did you receive a strong prophetic word that you actually judged and agreed with that said, by 30, you'll be doing this. By 40, you'll be doing that. Did you actually see that, right? Or is this something that you've placed on yourself? This is how my spouse should dress, okay? Yes, we should be modest. That's what the Bible says, okay? But it doesn't say anything about these are the colors you should use. This is the color blocking you should have, okay? So don't should on people unless you can back it up scripturally, okay? Don't should on people unless you can back it up scripturally, okay? Ask yourself, what are the debilitating rules that I've created for myself? What are they, all right? And how can I replace these rules, right, with empowering rules, 
with empowering rules, okay? Um, I've, I've shared this story before, but I remember coaching a particular lady. She was about 37 or so at the time. And I said to her, um, so what drains you? What stresses you out? She says, Paul, you know what? I get really stressed out um, as a working mom. When I go home, we're renovating our house. I get stressed out when my kids always want to play with me, right? And then I remember saying to her, your, your kids don't stress you out. The thing that is stressing you out is a debilitating rule that you've created for yourself about what a perfect mother looks like, right? And so you've got this standard and you feel like you're not actually attaining that to that standard, right? Uh, because in your mind, a perfect mother is how your mom was. And her mom was a classic nurturer. Mom had passed away, but was the classic nurturer, right? And she says, Paul, you're spot on. And it's not just my mom. It's also my sister, who's an occupational therapist, who's always telling us the kids need this, the kids need that. You need to do this. You need to do that, okay? Um, and so that was what was draining. And I said, you know what? What your kids need from you is how God has wired you, okay? So we should tilt our lives towards our strong moments, right? And I said to her, um, what your kids need from you is how God has wired you. They probably need a parent who loves working with them, right? And she said, yeah, but I felt so bad because they were helping us with the house and so on. I said, but how did they find it? How did they find it when they spent the day doing that with you? She said, they loved it, okay? So God wants to free us up from these shoulds that often come from debilitating rules that we've created for ourselves. I'm telling you, a guilty conscience, a guilty conscience is one of the quickest ways, quickest ways of getting you depressed, okay? Getting you anxious and getting you demotivated and just feeling like life is not worth living anymore, okay? Getting you into a place of despair. And the enemy literally creates rules, right? That he whispers into your mind, new rules, Every day, new rules, new standards that you're not even attaining. Once you attain them, he gives you new ones also. And you live under this weight of guilt, right? And it results in self-loathing. You end up literally hating yourself. Let me tell you something. Someone who struggles with self-hatred, not a good person to be around because they project that onto you, all right? You won't even be criticizing them. You won't even have an issue with them, but they project it onto you and they're like, the way you looked at me there, what were you thinking? And their default is always negative, right? That's a cognitive distortion that needs to be uprooted. In Luke 11, verse 46, the Bible says, Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you. That's a strong word of judgment, by the way. It's a, it's a word of destruction, okay? Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Now you might not have an expert in the law doing this to you but you know what a lot of us do this to ourselves. We don't need an expert in the law coming and weighing us down with so many rules and regulations. We do it to ourselves. Stick to the word. What does the word of God say and live by that. Live by that okay. Um so it's so sad that we do this to ourselves. The 11th distortion that I want to deal with, or the 10th distortion that I want to deal with, is emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning. This is where we live out our feelings, okay, even though they're based on lies. So our mindset is, because I'm feeling it, so it must be true. Because I feel thoughts of hate towards that person, then there must be something wrong with that person, okay? I feel stupid. I felt so stupid, so I must be stupid. Oh, when you said this to me, it made me feel stupid, 
So you were making me feel stupid. No, the person was just saying what they were saying. But because of your inferiority complex and the way you beat yourself up about certain things, you end up feeling stupid. No one makes you feel stupid. They can speak to me however they want, right? I must have a self-concept that's rooted in the word of God that knows I have the mind of Christ. I'm not stupid, okay? So you may be living from your emotions and even though they are so real to you, Okay, they are based very often on lies and the fruit of of those lies, okay, is often a negative belief pattern, a negative belief pattern. So you hear a lie from the enemy or a lie that comes from wounding that you've experienced in your life, okay? It becomes a stronghold and you experience emotions. You get into an emotional state simply because of those particular lies that you've believed. Please watch out for that, okay? Many times we feel uh, a problem is impossible to solve because we feel hopeless, right? So that emotion of feeling hopeless or feeling even helpless, right? Causes us to think, I don't think I can solve this problem. I don't think anyone can solve this problem, okay? Watch out for that, right? Proverbs 25 verse 28 says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. And guess what? Self-control very often begins in the mind. It's not just a physical thing. A lot of people try to control their behavior physically when they don't know how to control themselves mentally. Okay? Um, What's so sad is people don't understand that your emotions are a product of your belief system and not the other way around. Not the other way around. There may be exceptions here and there which we can discuss on another occasion, but generally speaking, your emotions are a product of your belief system, right? And not the other way around. Now, sometimes we get into a certain emotional state and then we end up thinking a certain way because we're feeling a certain way. But you see, your emotional state is somewhat invalid as a source of truth if your thoughts and beliefs are distorted and biased. If I've got biased thoughts and biased beliefs, right, my emotional state, okay, is somewhat warped and crooked like we spoke about last week, right, and I must be very careful about making decisions based on that, you see, uh, very important, okay. Our emotions are useful in many ways, but it's important to not absolutize them. When you absolutize your emotions, you're basically saying, because I feel this way, then this is reality, this is true, okay? So self-control, part of self-control is having a sound mind, okay? Your emotions are linked to the meaning you attach to the events around you, which can be very subjective. That's why I always say to people, we're not destroyed by our experiences. We're destroyed by the story we tell ourselves of our experience. Not so. Okay. The 11th cognitive distortion we're going to look at is the fallacy of change. You know, we've got this thing as human beings where we think, if this changes, then I'll be happy. If my bank balance just goes up by an extra 50,000, then I'm set and I'll be so happy. All right. But what happens? Your standards change when you get there. Right. Some of you are more anxious, more frustrated with life today than you were five years ago. Yet you earn so much more. Right. But your standards have changed and your expenses have also changed. Okay, so do not put too much weight and do not give too much power to change 
to external change, rather focus on kingdom thinking, which focuses on change that happens from the inside out, okay? God's agenda with us is to change us from the inside out, okay? That's the nature of kingdom transformation, right? So to what extent is your life externally referenced? Sadly, a lot of people, their lives are externally referenced. What do I mean by that? It's where you're this kind of person whose mindset is, if my boss starts liking me more and thinks I'm great, then I'll be happy. When my husband changes this behavior and starts noticing more me more, then I'll be really happy. When my kids focus more and start improving on their schoolwork, ah, then I'm set. I'll be so, so happy. Do you know that all those things can happen? And you're still not happy. Why? You are the common denominator. You're the common denominator. And there are other things that affect your level of joy. You see, joy is a spiritual quality. It's a spiritual quality. That's why the Bible tells us that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Why does it mention those particular things, right? Love is a choice I make. I choose to love someone. Joy is also a choice. It's not just something that happens to me. It's a choice that I actually make. And um, if you if you haven't heard my message on unlocking joy, please just go onto our website. Very powerful message where I unpack the whole concept of joy and I talk about the levels of happiness, okay? Um, so to what extent is your life externally referenced? When God wants to mold you, when God wants to fashion you, right? He's the potter, we're the clay, right? He takes us to a place where we are no longer externally referenced in how we approach things, but we work from the inside out, okay? Not this mindset that says, um, if others change, then I'll be happy, right? Uh, no, no. You will keep finding other things that you want to tweak in that particular individual, okay? If your mindset is, if I just lose that four kgs, four kgs, then I'll be so, 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 so happy. You know what? It doesn't work that way. You see, Jesus is taking us to a place where he's the source of our happiness. He's the source of our contentment, okay? Not other things outside of ourselves, right? So goal, goal setting is wonderful. And I love teaching on goal setting. It's a powerful subject to teach people on. But I've also learned that if we make goal, atta goal attainment our source of joy, we'll always be disillusioned. We'll always be disillusioned. Because once we get there, once I'm running at that particular speed that I want to get to, once I'm doing 10Ks in X amount, once I'm doing 21Ks in X amount, I'll want more. I will not be satisfied. Okay. Um, let me give you a classic biblical illustration of this. And uh, it's a passage of scripture my wife has taught on quite a bit when she teaches on the power of praise. But I want to give, give it to you from a certain angle. Genesis 29 uh, verses 30 to 35. And the main character we're going to focus on here is Leah. Okay, so uh, Jacob slept with Rachel as well. Okay, uh, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. Okay, so he had two wives, right? Um, so he worked for Laban another seven years. That was the deal, right? To get Rachel, who was uh, described in scripture as uh, beautiful and shapely, okay? Which shows me that you can be beautiful and unshapely, or you can be shapely and ugly, right? But anyway, um, that's, that, that's what's stated in the few verses before that. Sorry, I just had to say that, right? When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. How many of you are living in that space where you think, if this happens, if only I just do this, when I get that degree, then my dad will be proud of me. Okay. 
<laughs> Surely my husband will love me now. Again, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And she said, because the Lord has heard that I'm unloved, he has given me this son as well. So, I, so she named him uh, Simeon. Once again, Leah conceived and gave birth to a son. And she said, now at last, my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Isn't it interesting, the assumption that she was making? That was a cognitive distortion because there's no way here it says, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, Jacob suddenly just, you know, became so attached to her, right? So he was named Levi. And once more, she conceived and gave birth to a son and said, this time, I will praise the Lord. And I believe that God wants to take us to a place where we shift gears in our emotional maturity and we say, this time I will praise the Lord, okay? As opposed to, if I do this, then I'll be loved. If this changed, right, in my life, then I'll get this, okay? Then I'll be happy. No, let's just praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. It's almost like the Lord wanted her to learn that lesson. Okay, you've learned the lesson now, cool. Then you stop having children. Isn't that powerful? Okay, so is there anything that you are placing so much weight on? You're placing so much weight on this particular thing that if it happens, then I'll be happy. If it changes, then I'll be happy. Let me tell you something. That's not the source of true joy. It's not the source of true joy. The next cognitive distortion that I want us to look at is global labeling and mislabeling. Global labeling and mislabeling. Labeling. This is something we do so often, okay? So <clears throat> you keep saying to yourself things like, I'm a loser. The reality is that that one word cannot describe a human being. Who's there to judge, to say, that's a loser, that's a winner, you know? I don't like when my kids say, oh, and then the smart kids did this and this and this. And then the not smart kids did that and that. And I'm saying to myself, there's a massive, massive continuum. And some of the kids who do really well aren't necessarily extremely smart naturally, right? In terms of IQ, they just work hard, okay? So who's to judge? Smart kid, not smart kid. So we've got that tendency to, to dichotomize a lot of things. Either or thinking, black, white thinking. Little kids do that, okay? Um, so this is where you keep saying things like, I'm a loser, Okay, but you only failed in one task. That's global mislabeling. Okay, you only failed in one task, but you come up with this label, I'm a loser. Right, you mess up, you're working, doing DIY, and you cut yourself, right? Or you hurt yourself with a hammer. Oh, Paul, you're clumsy, right? We say things like that to ourselves. I don't, but I hear people doing that, right? Uh, watch out for that. Because it's a cognitive distortion that's causing you to lie about yourself. And the sad thing is that your subconscious mind, your brain literally hears that. And you're sending a message to your brain that you're clumsy, that you're stupid. And we see this happening with sports people, isn't it? They, don't, they stop scoring goals and then their failure, right, causes them to keep failing. But we've seen in sport very often when a team is on a winning streak, what happens? Success breeds success. I still remember a number of years ago in the FA Cup, Leeds came to uh, United. I say came because I'm a United fan. I don't always say that when I'm preaching and so on. I don't want to alienate myself from my audience, okay? So if you don't like United, just forget I said that, okay? Just look past me. Just love me as a Christian brother, okay? But the point is this. Um, Leeds United, which was from about the third division at the time, came through and beat us 2-0, okay? But they were coming from a winning streak 
of about 12 games in a row. So they had the winning mentality. They were saying positive things to themselves. This is so, so important. How have you mislabeled yourself? And how are you mislabeling other people around you? Just think about it, okay? Um, what are you saying? For example, you hear people saying things like, you know, every day I drop my children off with um, good assistance at daycare. All right, that's a healthy thing to say. But alternatively, you could say, um, every day I'm just abandoning my kids to strangers. Okay, can you see you've mislabeled it? And as a result of that, it's affecting your current emotional state. Okay, if you keep saying this, you're going to see yourself. You're not going to see yourself as a good parent, as an effective parent, but you'll always be riddled with guilt. Okay, it also is a source of conflict in marriage, isn't it? This type of mislabeling that takes place. Okay, um, so for example, instead of saying my spouse is fairly untidy and needs to up their game when it comes to tidiness. Okay, you end up saying, Phew, that guy just loves living in a pigsty. Now, that's not really accurate. Okay, uh, it then grows to they have no respect for me at all. But they show you respect in many other ways. Okay, uh, then it goes to I can't be married to a pig. This is just not on. Right. And it leads to a divorce. Right. If you study divorces, you'll notice that very often there's, there's strong lying spirits, lying spirits, demonic lies that the couple end up believing concerning each other. And let me tell you that it starts off from these distortions, it starts off from these distortions. Be very careful about the accuser of the brethren, because he'll literally drop. That's the devil, by the way, drop in accusations in your mind concerning your spouse, concerning your loved one, concerning the people around you, concerning your boss, and you agree with those lies, you empower, you empower those demons. It happens. And a lot of people don't understand how these things actually end up working. Let me give you um, a powerful scripture here. Revelation 12 verse 10, the Bible says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Okay. Who's the accuser of the brethren? It's the devil, Diablos. Okay. Um, but sadly, as Christians, we end up playing that role towards each other and towards ourselves by mislabeling certain things that have taken place. Okay, what's the assumption behind this particular guardian lie? Uh, what's the assumption behind this cognitive distortion? This is the assumption. It is possible and fair to sum up an entire human being and their life in one word. And we're often doing that to people. Okay, the 13th one I want to look at is always being right, always being right. Some people have this mindset where they have to be right. But I want to ask you, would you rather be right or reconciled? Would you rather be right or reconciled? I remember there's a book um, I got years ago by Joseph uh, Garlington um, called Right or Reconciled, right? Sometimes we've got this cognitive distortion that if I lose this argument, then it means I'm weak. Uh -uh. True strength is being able to lose an argument. True strength is being able to say, oh, I didn't understand this. Thanks for clarifying. I want to encourage you. Do not be so proud. Do not be so stubborn that you have to always be right. Okay. You see, some people are fairly argumentative. Other people are quite competitive. 
But when the strength of being competitive is overused, okay, you're that person who has to win at all costs. And very often it happens in an argument, in a debate, in dialogue, okay? And it's a stronghold for many people. If it's a stronghold for you, it's important that you deal with it, okay? It's important that you actually deal with it, okay? Your identity cannot be in your correctness. Your identity cannot be in perfection or the power you feel because people see you as correct all the time, okay? Would you rather be right or reconciled? The relationship is more important than you being right all the time. Okay, in Proverbs 12, verse 15, the Bible says, The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Right? The reason why a lot of people are not open to receiving advice is because their identity is, is in the fact that I know everything and I'm always right. You know those people who always finish your sentences for you? Okay, they're trying hard to show that I already knew what you were about to say. Okay, um, be careful of that if that's you. Uproot it from your life. Okay, you don't have to prove to the whole world that you know everything. Right, otherwise you become a difficult person to deal with. What we call a know-it-all. You know those know-it-alls, right? Our identity is not in the fact that we know a lot. Okay, our identity is not in the fact that we won an argument. It's okay to say, my bad, I was wrong. Those of you who struggle with this, just try to practice it. Go from here, from this message, go and speak to someone where they were actually right concerning something and just say, you know what, you were right about that particular thing. I actually read the stats uh, later on. You were actually right. I'm sorry for being argumentative, okay? God wants to uproot these things from us and it starts off here in our minds, right? Um, sometimes I'll preach sermons and I know I'm preaching something where some of the content is very new to certain people, but the person, people will keep coming to me and say, thanks, that was a good refresher, pastor. And I'm thinking to myself, when did you learn about this? Okay, this isn't written in that book or that book and so on. Don't You don't have to be this person who I already knew that, but you were just reminding me. No, if it's your first time hearing something, just admit it and just say, sure, this was new to me. Sure, this is my first time thinking about this. Sure, when I listen to messages, I just like being motivated and having a word, a prophetic word that will just take me to another level. That's all I like, but you're helping me to change my diet. And I'm telling you now, if we want to grow spiritually, we need to have a balanced diet. And having a balanced diet spiritually is where we know that our breakthrough comes. Yes, when we receive a word from the Lord, where we know it's a now word for right now. But I'm telling you right now, our breakthrough also comes when we renew our mind so that it's a sound mind and uh, we can, we've got character that can actually contain where God is taking us to. That's why we, as a church, we're a church of the word and the spirit. It's so important. We can't just be spirit, spirit, spirit only and word, word, word only. Okay, we're a church of the word and the spirit. And when we look in scripture, there's no dichotomy between the word and the spirit. Okay, God spoke his word at creation, right? But he didn't just speak into a vacuum. It says that the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the surface of the deep, okay, over the darkness. So spirit and word results in new creation. And that's a pattern in kingdom thinking throughout. If you want change in your life, you have to be strong in the word and strong in the things of the spirit. And that's where you get results, okay? And then finally, I want to look at this uh, cognitive distortion and we'll continue with others next week. But I want to look at this one, minimizing, minimizing. Okay, uh, a lot of people do this. This is where there's a real issue and someone challenges you about this real issue, but you're in denial. And very often when we're given feedback, 
right? There's actually a process to landing the feedback, isn't it? Okay, the feedback doesn't land straight away, right? Usually we're in denial first. And I often say to people, denial does not belong here. Denial is a long river in Egypt, okay? So usually we're first in denial. Then afterwards, we are angry. Sometimes we are angry with the messenger, the person who's giving us the feedback, or we're angry with ourselves, especially when you're this person who's striving with these shoulds, striving for perfection. You're angry with yourself and you react angrily to the person giving you the feedback instead of actually saying, thank you so much. That was actually a blind spot. Thanks for that feedback. Okay. Um, then sometimes what actually happens to us is we rationalize it away, don't we? We say, hey, but as a single mom, you know, I think God understands, right? Uh, I don't really need to pray. You know, that type of mindset. Hey, uh, but um, you know what? Hey, but with the kind of boss I have, I know God understands, right? And maybe he doesn't understand. Maybe God is expecting more from you, right? Um, so that's quite important. Then sometimes we actually then agree with the feedback, but we don't change. And then the final stage is where there's new learning, where there's new learning. And the acronym I use for landing feedback is DARAN. Denial, anger, rationalizing. Okay, then we agree with it, but we don't change. You know, those people will say, yes, yes, yes. My father used to tell me that. Yes, yes, yes. My brothers used to also tell me that. But there's no change. Okay, uh, true change happens when there's new learning. And new learning is where you acquire knowledge with a resultant behavioral and attitudinal change. That's true learning. Okay, so don't be in denial when you're given feedback. Let me ask you a question. What are the things that people have been saying continuously to you? Maybe you've been having dreams about it. Maybe God convicts you about it through a sermon. But somehow you've got the stubborn bulldog tenacity where you're not willing to let go of that, um, that high place in your mind, that stronghold, okay, that guardian lie. What have those around you been saying to you that you have rejected in your stubbornness? Okay, watch out for that. You see, uh, sometimes we actually minimize something on behalf of someone else. You know what I'm talking about? So you say to someone, hey, I'm concerned about your child. This is the pattern I'm seeing. Yeah, no, I think he's just going through a rough time. You know, all the changes that we're going through. Yeah, his father was retrenched and so on. So you can understand. Okay. But you don't know objectively that that's why your child is behaving that way. But you're minimizing it and you're not addressing it. You see, sometimes we minimize things because we don't really want to face those things. One of the keys to success in life, ladies and gentlemen, is facing stuff. What I call facing stuff. It's facing yourself. Actually saying, sure, guys, I'm actually a bit disorganized. Right? Facing yourself. Oh, guys, you know what? To be honest with you, I'm quite lazy. Facing yourself. Right? And then facing your work where you're able to actually say, you know what, I actually don't like this. I, sh I should swap roles. I need to talk to my boss about this, you know, because I'm not cut out for this, okay? It's not intellectually challenging enough for me. That's facing your work, right? And the third stage of facing stuff is facing others, where you can actually speak to an individual and actually say, you know what, let's take this relationship from the top. Let's take from the top, because to be honest with you, I often feel drained when I'm around you because you want something from me. Think about the last three times we met, you wanted something from me. I don't believe this friendship is mutual. Let's talk, okay, facing others. If you cannot do those three things, it will actually cause you to stagnate. Okay, if you cannot face yourself, if you cannot face your work, if you cannot face others, it will cause you to stagnate. Key question, what have you been minimizing that you should actually accept in terms of reality check? Okay, what have you been minimizing? What do you need to address? 
Is there feedback that people have been giving you, but you're in denial about it? Okay. In Proverbs 15 verse 31, it says, whoever heeds life giving correction will be at home among the wise. You know, we see this often happening, especially when it comes to um, alcohol abuse in particular, right? Where someone says to someone else, I think you're drinking too much. I think you're getting codependent with alcohol. I think your relationship with alcohol is not healthy. You know, people get challenged around these things and often they're in denial. Okay. I remember a particular couple that I had to counsel and the guy would literally almost manifest. He'll become someone else when his wife says, I think my husband has a drinking problem. And this guy would just be like, she doesn't understand. She doesn't understand when I'm there. I'm just unwinding. I'm just with my friends. We're having good intellectual conversation. But at an objective level, the things she would describe that he would do when he began to drink, okay, it was obvious that this guy had a problem, right? But he was minimizing the problem, right? Watch out for that. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, be of sober spirit. In other words, we must be vigilant, okay? Be on the alert, okay? When we talk about being sober, having a sober spirit, it's not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, okay? Just being aware that, you know what, you also can fall right? Not being overconfident, okay? So be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Principle, the devil cannot devour anyone and everyone, so he goes around seeking whom he may devour, and we need to be on the lookout. That's why Jesus didn't just say pray, Jesus says watch and pray, so my question to you is, what are people telling you? Maybe they're saying to you, hey, you need to slow down, but you keep rationalizing it away. I need to provide for my family, so I must work hard. Yes, but just check your health. Maybe you need to slow down. Maybe they're saying to you, you have an anger issue. Then you're like, no, 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 angry, me? No, I'm just passionate. But you're in denial, you're minimizing it, okay? Maybe they're saying to you, you're overeating. She's like, I oh, know it's okay, I'll go to the gym tomorrow, it's fine. You know, one of the reasons why people put on unnecessary weight, I read up on this recently, it's actually because we sometimes overestimate how many calories we're burning when we are exercising, okay? So we think to ourselves, ah, because I went for that run this afternoon, cool, I can just binge out and eat anything. Doesn't work like that. We need to actually know how many calories are we burning when we're exercising and how many can we actually uh, consume, Okay, so don't overestimate estimate the benefits of your exercising, right? Um, what are people saying to you? Are they saying to you, you, you haven't had enough sleep? You're not sleeping enough. You have a drinking problem. Do not minimize it, but say, Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you that you've used this person to speak into my life. Because that's what he does. He uses people around us. If you feel that it's off and it's not from the Lord, then chuck it out. But the gift we have, it's a gift of people around us. Isn't that powerful? God is good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for what you're saying to us in this time and this hour. We open our hearts to you, Lord, and I pray that you would expose whatever cognitive distortions are affecting us. Show us this week, Lord, what things we need to focus on, what things we need to repent of, so that, God, we can grow in you and become true disciples that are effective in decision-making, effective in leadership, effective in influence. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, and we say we want to traffic in truth. 
Give us a sound mind, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you again, get the prayer strategy from the website. Pray through these principles. Pray through these. God really wants to minister to us with regards to this. And next week, I'll be continuing uh, talking about other cognitive distortions, uh, things we don't often think about. God bless you.